I love this church, I tell you. It, it, it is so much fun talking with everyone and joking and uh, just being in the presence of the Lord to be able to worship and share all the good things that we have in our lives and in our hearts. And I'm just grateful that you're all here today. We thank you for that. Um, I am going to finish up the Sermon on the Mount, not today, because there's still a lot to go. But I, um, Tyler and I had talked about it, and he had asked that I would finish up for him, um, which I will do. And then after that, I think I promised at one time I was doing a, a series of sermons on biblical thinking and justice, whatever. And I will do that, I promise. You know, and I'm not going to say anything about that because I have to live, you know, later on Sunday. <laughs> Although I just did, didn't I? So, yeah, so. Oh, no. It is all good. You're right. Yeah. We are a light to the nations, and that's what we're called to be, is a light to the nations, to the people around us, to the unbelievers that, around us, that are around us. And today we're going to talk about prayer and answered prayer in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read the scripture from Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven good good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, your word is our food. Your word is what we use in order to live our lives, Lord God. We thank you for it. We pray that you would bless this message today, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable to you, Lord God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Tyler's been talking about the Sermon on the Mount and how it provided guidance and the standards for kingdom living. And he has been tying all of these things together, and he left off last week with the expression of don't give dogs what's holy and don't throw your pearls before swine, and he explained what those things meant. And so we're going to look today in this section about ask and prayer and, 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 and prayer that is, that is answered by God and find out what is the vision of God in this passage, what does this passage actually mean. Brothers and sisters, God so wants you to be assured of your privilege of getting the good gifts that he's promised you. He promises, he tells you you will have them, and he so wants you to have them. He wants you to say to the world, look what God has done for me. Look at the wonderful things that are happening in my life, even in the midst of illness, of of disability, of fires, of all different kinds of things. Look what God has done for me. And after all, the purpose of the church is living for the glory of God among the nations. That's why we're here, is to show people the goodness of God so that they will be attracted to him. 
What better way to show what God has done for me than to offer prayers that God answers for us? Now, I would say, first of all, that this is a much misunderstood passage. Jesus is not telling us that every prayer that we offer is going to be answered. That's not what he's saying here. As Tyler taught us, we have to look at the context in which the passage appears in order to learn what its meaning actually is. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples. This was his first real teaching sermon to them. And what was he teaching them about? He was teaching them about the standards for kingdom living. Things like how to be blessed, how to be salt and light, how to deal with anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your neighbors, loving your enemies. He told the disciples that they have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Being perfect, how do we do that? And there were also a lot of other things, a lot of knots. Things like don't be boastful. When you pray, pray in secret. Don't pray in front of others for, for honor. Things about fasting, things about laying up treasures, things about anxiety, about judging others, pearls before swine. How do we live in this kingdom? If these are the rules, how do we live in this kingdom? Well, the Sermon on the Mount tells us everything we need to know about morality, the blessed parts, religion, what not to do in terms of what the Pharisees were doing, money, possessions, tells us about human relationships, judge not, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. But, you know, the question that comes up for me always is, oh, Lord, how can I do these things? I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace, but I'm a sinner nonetheless, and I don't have the ability to do these things. Sometimes I don't want to bless or pray for those who persecute me. It's really hard. I don't know how to identify the dogs and the swine. How can I be a light? I don't have the ability to do that. Well, and this is an absolute truth about our mighty and gracious God. He does not command us to do anything without giving us the means to do it. He would not ask us to do something if he didn't give us the ability to do it. It is his greatest desire that we be a light and a blessing to those around us. And he equips us to do that. That's why he blessed Abraham. If you, look, if you go back to Genesis 12, you see that he blesses Abraham and he says, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. That was the purpose of blessing Abraham, was that people would see and be attracted to the one true God. They would set, apart, set aside their idols and they would worship the true God. And he has the same purpose for us today. And so in the context of Jesus' teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount, we see a promise in verses 7 and 8. It's almost as if Jesus is anticipating his disciples' objections. I can't do this. And he's like, yeah, I know, I know that you can't do that. But listen. This is how you're going to be able to do it. Jesus is addressing those objections. He's addressing those doubts. And so we see that these promises of ask, seek, and knock apply to the commands in this sermon. Jesus tells us that if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. And I think the message that we should get from this is that Ask your father for a kingdom character, and you will get it. If 
you ask your father for a kingdom character, you will get it. And the promises are sure because the one who makes the promises is truthful, he's trustworthy, and he's faithful. And in fact, these promises are repeated six times, three times in verse 7 and repeated in verse 8. Ask and it will be given. Seek you will find. Knock it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Six times Jesus says this. John MacArthur says, in light of this great promise from Jesus, we can feel free to love others and totally sacrifice for others because our Heavenly Father sets the example in his generosity to us. So I'll give you these things. You can give it away. And promises that we will have access to his eternal and unlimited treasures to meet our own needs and the need of others. We don't need to be afraid of depleting our own resources and having nothing left because he will give us what we need when we're giving him and the people around us what they need. And, you know, one of the greatest dangers in reading Jesus' statements in the scriptures is spiritualizing them and saying, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It's not whatever you ask for. Do not take away the literal meaning of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said it. And Jesus meant it. We will get these things. But I know that there are some problems with that, and people have asked for things that they've not received. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to look at these verses a little bit more closely. Verse 7 tells us to ask, seek, and knock. Okay? These are not synonyms or different ways of saying the same thing. Okay? You might think so, but they're not. There's a rising scale of intensity in Jesus' words here. So let's look at ask. What does ask mean? Ask, asking someone requires humility because you need to need something from somebody else and a consciousness of that need, right? It's a petition from an inferior to a superior, from one who doesn't have to one that does have. It's seeking something and then receiving it. So, hey, Dad, can I borrow the car? Okay, that's an ask, right? Mom, can I have another brownie? That's an ask. It requires some kind of relationship, though, between the person asking and the person being asked. In the context of what Jesus is saying, it requires a relationship with a personal God. Just as you would not ask a total stranger in New York City to borrow their car, say, hey, can I borrow your car? How can we expect to receive things from a personal God when we have no relationship with him, when we're not friends, when we don't speak with him? To seek. Well, seeking involves asking plus acting. It's the next step up in intensity. The biblical word for seeking implies some urgency. We earnestly ask for something, but we're active in trying to obtain the fulfillment of that need. We do our part. The Greek word that's used implies demanding, craving, begging, some real urgency there. So if you misplace your phone, what do you do? You drop everything to look for it. You seek your phone. You're looking for your phone. If you misplace your child at the store, okay, you don't stop searching until you find your child, right? That's what you do, okay? Jesus talks about this kind of seeking in his parable of the lost sheep, where one goes missing and the shepherd leaves everything else and goes to find that sheep, right? We try to find it by any means. You don't worry about your needs, when you're searching for it or when you're seeking it. 
Well, what should we be seeking? Well, that's easy, brothers and sisters. It's God himself. That's what we're supposed to be seeking. In Psalm 27, verse 8, the psalmist says, You have said, God, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So we see the Old Testament use of this word is about seeking God. Psalm 34, 10 says, Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We're instructed in Psalm 105, 4, Seek the Lord with all your strength. Seek his presence continually. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. So when Jesus tells us earlier in the sermon to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he's telling us to put God's plan and purpose before our own, whatever our own is. Put God's plan and purpose first. Seek it above everything else. Drop everything and look for the kingdom. Look for the kingdom. Seek God. Jesus admonished the Jewish leaders in that day in John 5.39. He says to them, you search the scriptures or seek the scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me. The scriptures, when we seek him, bear witness about Jesus. Luke describes the Bereans in Acts 17.11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were seeking. They were seeking God through his word. Throughout scripture, the command to seek is always related to the knowledge of God, the scripture, the kingdom, and living in harmony with God's will. This is Jesus' command here. Seek God. Seek his kingdom, and you will find. Well, brothers and sisters, are we seeking him? Are we seeking his kingdom and his will with all of our heart, with all of our mind? Are we seeking it with even the same intensity that we look for our lost cell phone? Are we doing that? He promises us that if we seek him with all of our heart, we will find him. What a motivation that is. If you seek God with all your heart, you will find him and get that joy. And I know there are folks here that have experienced that joy of seeking him and felt God appear to them and talk to them. That's what he wants, to find and be in fellowship with the God of the universe. Well, that's seeking. Now, knocking. What is knocking? Well, knocking is asking plus acting plus persevering. Knocking means requesting admission when the way is closed. In Jesus' day, believe it or not, there was no text messaging, no video doorbells, right? None of those fancy things. So people were always knocking on your door to ask for something, borrowing something, begging for something, a traveler coming needing a place to stay. And then, as now, there were different types of knocks, right? Got a gentle tap, tap, tap. You know, you don't want to wake your wife or whatever, you know. Tap, tap, tap. Rat-a-tat-tat. Shaving a haircut three bit, two bit, six bits. You know, that kind of knock. the weird knock that your teenage son makes when he comes home at night, you know, that kind of thing. Or an incessant pounding, that knocking, that bang, 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 bang. Well, the word that Jesus uses here calls to mind the pounding with a fist or a stick on the door, that bam, bam, bam. You've all seen movies like that where people bang, 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 and then they don't answer. and Bang, 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 and it goes on and on and on until somebody finally comes to the door. It's a rapid, loud knock of urgency, the knock of an emergency. 
It tells us to knock again and again until the door is open. Is that a duck? <laughs> oh, that's, oh, okay. It was a duck then. I got, okay. But, but it's a knock. It's a pounding, incessant knock. In the parallel passage in Luke's gospel about the Lord's Prayer, he tells a story in Luke 11.5, and if you want to turn to that, we can take a look at that. So right after Jesus has taught them the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of Luke 11, Jesus says to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then Jesus follows up in the rest of that paragraph with, ask it will be given, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. Okay. So this story that Jesus tells is not where I go over to Ryan's house or I go to JJ's house and go, hey, let me in, let me in. No, the person's in bed. They're not coming to the door. The door's bolted and someone's pounded on the door saying, I am not letting you go back to sleep. You need to come to this door because I need to get these things. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus follows in chapter 18 with the story of the persistent widow. You might remember that story where there was the unjust judge and the widow kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. Finally he says, I really don't care about this person very much, but just to get her off my back, I'm going to give her what she's asking for. I'm going to give her justice. And that's the kind of persistent knocking that Jesus is, is talking about here. In this matter of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 7, which I have to get back to here. There we go. Okay. Jesus tells us that the Father loves us, that the Father wants to care for us, but we must ask for those things that we need. We're seeking admission when the door is closed. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We're using the same imagery. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you think that when Jesus is at the door of your heart or of an unbeliever's heart, that it's a gentle rat-a-tat-tat, just a little gentle tapping? No, Jesus pounds, seeking that the door be open. Let me into your life. Let me into your heart. And yet, some still refuse. How sad is that? How sad is that, that Jesus pounds to get entry into your heart? And people say, no, I'm in bed, can't get up, too warm. Well, what door do we pound on? Jesus pounds on the door of our heart. What door do we pound on? Well, in John 10, 7, Jesus tells us, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is the door that we pound on initially. Now, Jesus expands on that in verse 13 of chapter 7, which we'll talk about next week, about the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. 
But brothers and sisters, God promises answers and the granting of the requests of his children. But note carefully that this promise of answered prayer is only for believers. It's only for children of the Father. Okay? The one who claims this promise must be living in obedience to his Father. 1 John 3.22 says, Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Why do we get it? Because we please him, because we're in relationship with him. And know also that when we ask, our motive in asking him must be right. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. We're not talking about the wrong words here. It's not like, oh, you didn't use the right words. You didn't say in Jesus' name we pray. No, we ask with the wrong motivation. And we must be submissive to Jesus' will, God's will. James 1, 7, and 8 says that a double-minded man must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 1 John 5, 7, 5, 14 says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So again, if we go back and look at what Jesus is preaching about here on the Sermon on the Mount, we see this applicability of answered prayer to the command to not be double-minded. What did, what did Jesus say? You can't serve both God and mammon. And when you try to do that, you're double-minded. And how are you going to get what God promises when you're disobeying the command of Jesus? In fact, how can we ask for more from God when we're not faithfully using what he's already given us? But how do we know that Jesus' promises are true? How do we know that God grants prayers? Surely we've all asked for things that we haven't gotten. We've all made prayers that we thought were fervent and and in accordance with God's will or whatever, and we haven't gotten. Well, the reason we know the promise is true is because, of course, Jesus tells us that it's true. And he gives us examples from an earthly perspective that we can relate to in verses 9 and 11, and he uses a less to greater argument, which is very common in the Bible. So he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, again, we see the scriptural teaching of man's fallen evil nature. Okay, we are evil. We're saved by grace, but we, are, we have an evil nature. And if you who are evil, Jesus says, can give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? An earthly man grants the reasonable requests of his child, like Jason's doing now, okay? No, but it's, you know, I mean, you guys laugh, but this is what Jesus did when he preached. I mean, these are real-life things that people would have known about and would have seen and would have seen what it was to grant the request of a child by a father, okay? Surely, if an earthly father will grant the wishes, the reasonable desires of his child, because the child says, you know, I want to go see ACDC, you know, and whatever. He goes, no, you can't. You're only three. You can't do that. You know, so. <laughs> but, but the earthly father does grant the reasonable desires of the child. Surely, your heavenly father who's the source of all goodness, of all kindness, of all grace, will give good things to those who humbly ask him for them. But again, is he everybody's father? 
No, decidedly not. He is everyone's God. He's everyone's creator. He's everyone's king. Everyone will bow the knee at some point. But he is the father of only those who have been born again and who have accepted Jesus as the only way to salvation. So this is a promise that Jesus is making to believers. And friends, if you have not chosen to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today's the day to do that. See the promises that God offers to those who are willing to bend the knee and acknowledge him as Lord to graciously and gratefully accept his saving work for us. Today would be that day. And Jesus uses that relationship of father and son because our most naturally selfless relationship is with our children. We would sacrifice virtually everything for our children, and yet that cannot compare to God's love. And so Jesus uses these two examples. In verse 9, he says, Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Well, we see, first of all, a clear parallel to Jesus in the desert with Satan, where Satan tries to tempt him with the stone turning into bread. Okay, so Jesus turns that around and uses it as an example now. But the second, perhaps, the stone resembles a loaf of bread. The kid asks for a loaf of bread, father gives him a stone that looks like a loaf of bread. Well, a father will not deceive his child and try to trick him into thinking that his request has been granted. So this request, this first request, applies to a physical need of the son, that the father will fulfill the physical need of the son. In verse 10, Jesus talks about a spiritual need. And he says, so if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Now, we're not talking about a poisonous snake here where the kid's going to get bitten and die. The inference is that a serpent could be prepared to look like ordinary meat and, unlike the stone, would fill the child's need, right? He would have something to fill his belly. But a snake in that in Jewish culture is unclean. The Jewish father would not deceive and defile his son into dishonoring the word of God by tricking him into eating unceremonial unclean food, or ceremonially unclean food. Jesus is pointing out that it's not natural for a father, one of us, to ignore either the physical or spiritual needs of his son. And likewise, our Heavenly Father will not ignore either our physical or spiritual needs, the needs of his children. That's what Jesus is saying here. But what do we seek? What do we ask for then? What is it that we should be seeking and asking for? In verse 11, Jesus tells us that your Father who is in heaven will give good things to those who ask him. So Jesus does not say all things. He says good things. Because not everything is good. So what are these good things? Well, we see that he certainly will not give his children things that are bad for them. He will not trick them. He will not give them things that will make make them unclean, because that was the point of of the illustration. In the parallel passage from Luke at 11, chapter 11, verse 13, again, the same place, Luke recording it, Jesus specifies what this good thing is or what these good things is. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God will give wisdom one of our greatest needs. John 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. The Holy Spirit provides wisdom. That's where we get wisdom. 
The Holy Spirit provides solutions for the problems relating to all that Jesus has been teaching about. How do I do these things? The Holy Spirit provides the wisdom to be able to guide us into being able to do those things that we're supposed to do to live in the kingdom, including person-to-person relationships. The instructions in verses 1 through 6 here about judging, judge not, pearls before swine, dogs, all those things, the Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom for that. And as is always the case with Jesus' teachings, this conclusion that God's going to give these good things provides the perfect introduction to his next great lesson in this sermon, which is what everybody calls the golden rule, right? The next verse in the sermon, treat our neighbors as we want to be treated. And isn't the Father's help, the Holy Spirit's help, constant help needed in our effort to do that? Verse 12 says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Some translations may say therefore instead of so, but the point is this. This verse sums up the entire Sermon on the Mount. Everything that Jesus has been saying up to that point is summed up in that verse. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, as Jesus points up, it sums up the entire Old Testament as well. It is the law and the prophets. It is the the second great command. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, in this section that we've been studying, gives us really three reasons for obeying this command to love our neighbors as ourselves. One... The father's promises to his children demand it, okay? Verses 7 and 8 promised us, his children, that we will get all we need to obey this command. Well, if God's given us these things to obey this command, shouldn't we be using them to obey this command? Second, the father's pattern for children, for father-slash-children relationship, demands it. We talked about earthly fathers meeting the needs of their children, Jesus gives us those examples to show that God's pattern demands that we respond accordingly to those around us. We need to do the same. We need to give good gifts to those around us as well. And third, the Father's purpose for his children, for us, demands it as well. So when Jesus tells us that loving our neighbors as ourselves is the law and the prophets, he tells us the Father's purpose for us. Because that's what God's word is all about. It's what we are all about. It's what we are supposed to be. It is our purpose. It is Jesus' paraphrase of the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So, this great commandment, or golden rule, as it is often called, in our culture today is sometimes thought to be the great equalizer by unbelievers in the world. Well, we believe the same thing you do. We believe in loving our neighbors. We believe in doing good for people around us. Isn't that the same as what you believe? Well, no, it's not. It doesn't put unbelievers on even grounds with believers, although both would agree that we must do good to other people. You see, the present secular rule about that was taught even way back before the time of Jesus. Confucius, the Greeks, the non-believing Jews at that time all believed in a similar rule. But there's a huge difference between a member of God's family upholding this rule and the evil man of the world treating others well. First, the ancient and also the contemporary emphasis on this rule is a negative rule. For instance, the Stoics from way back when stated that what you do not want done to you, do not do to anyone else. 
And that was the Jewish rule as well. The Jewish rabbis had the same rule as well. These unbelievers who want to treat people as they want to be treated are not emphasizing love, are they? Their application of the rule is all self-interest. If you don't want to be stepped on, then don't step on somebody else, right? It's based upon how we want to be treated. That's what the secular rule is all about. Jesus says that our treatment of others must be based upon love. Society, not so much. That's not what they want. Jesus' command is positive. Now, second, society believes that man can do this on his own strength. We can do this. We can treat other people well. We can make sure that everybody is treated equally. We have laws. We have all these different things. But we, as children of the Father, know that apart from the operation of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of God's children, obedience is impossible. We can't do this. People bug us. People do things that bother us. Okay? It is hard to love people like that. Third, society separates love from man from the commandment of love for God. They say, well, love your neighbor. What about God? Well, you don't have to worry about that. Love, love your neighbor. People claim Jesus' golden rule as their own, saying that serving your fellow man is the most important thing. But Jesus tells us that love for God is above all. And that separates us as well. And fourth, the world sees this as a kind of a tit-for-tat sort of thing. Kind of like karma, right? You do the good thing now, something good will happen to you later on down the line. It's like saying honesty is the best policy. Society views these rules as utilitarian. But Jesus sees them as summing up the entire law and the prophets, God's purpose for man. And the summary of the law is love. And love implies self-denial and outgoingness. Love serves for the sake of the one being served and serves in the ways that it likes to be served, whether it receives service like that back or not. That was God's love for us. He loved us even though we didn't love him. And they loved us anyway, and he gave us his son. This is a divine level of love, only reached by divine help. Again, as MacArthur says, only God's children can have right relations with others because only they possess the motivation and the resources to refrain from self-righteously condemning others and to live in an utterly selfless way. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we pray, like it says here in these verses, ask, seek, knock, ask, you shall receive. Count confidently on an answer from God. This is the beginning and ending of Jesus' teaching, not just here, but in all of Jesus' works. His first ever public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, ask and you shall receive. His last, his very last sermon that he gave to anyone in the upper room with the disciples in John 16, 24, his last words to them were, ask and you shall receive. If Jesus bookends his teachings like that, it's pretty important. It's pretty important. His first teaching and his last teaching. Dear friends, do not limit the sure promise of God, robbing it of its power, robbing us of the confidence that his promises are meant to inspire. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18, Paul tells us, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. As Andrew Murray says, offered up between never ceasing joy and never ceasing praise, Never ceasing prayer in the middle is the manifestation of the power of the eternal life, where Jesus also always prays. Ask, seek, and knock that your Father would give you kingdom character 
and you will get it. Examine your prayer life, your walk with Jesus, your filling with the Spirit. If we are not constantly rejoicing, constantly giving thanks, can we honestly expect our prayers to be answered? Are we really walking with the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your sure promises. What an awesome privilege it is to know that the God of the universe, our Father in heaven, will give us what we need in order to live this kingdom life that we might be beacons to those around us, that men would be attracted to you, and that your church would be glorified throughout the nations, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to do communion now. So I need um, perhaps some elders to come up and serve the elements. For those of you who thought that Ted wasn't an elder anymore, he, he came up, he answered the call to come up for the, with the elders. So <laughs> Today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper.